Last week, Lee contrasted the difference from 1 Samuel, several chapters, uh, the way two men, Saul and his son Jonathan, responded to the successes of another man, a third man named David, who was introduced into the story. Saul became eaten up with jealousy and envy, which eventually turned into anger, rage, violence, and then really serious mental illness. Saul's son Jonathan, on the other hand, recognized and acknowledged that God had anointed David, and he chose as an act of his will to love him, even though it meant he knew that he would not be king when he was supposed to be king after Saul, that David would be king. He chose to love David. He chose to celebrate David's victories and work with him rather than against him. Saul tried to kill David several times, as Lee pointed out. The text pointed out he would throw spears at him when David was playing music to try to make him feel better. And eventually, Saul would try to kill his own son just because his son, Jonathan, defended David's integrity and tried to convince his dad that David wasn't opposed to him. Today, we're going to begin a two-part series within a series, so to speak. We're covering, if you're new and you've just arrived on the scene with us or you're visiting, we're covering the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel in big chunks. It's kind of challenging, actually, to teach this much scripture. I've got six chapters assigned to me today, and we'll do our best to get through it, but we're going to cover kind of a two-part series on the 10 years of David's life when he's running for Saul and Saul's chasing him. And what we're going to do is we're going to compare those two men's lives and how they respond to adversity during that 10-year period of time, the trials and the tribulations of life, and we're going to look at their responses. So for the next two weeks, and beginning right now, I want you to think of Saul's life the way it appears in Scripture as sort of a downward trajectory, if we could pull up that first visual. I tried to come up with something that would illustrate Saul's life. I don't know if you've ever been in any of these old hotels or buildings that are several stories that had these really cool old spiral staircases. This is kind of a visual. If you've ever stood at the top of one of those, I've had that opportunity several times. Just stand at the top and look down at kind of the awe of the architecture. But think of Saul's life in that way. And I know what you're thinking. There's times in my life that my life's been like that. And I'm not talking about hard times right now. We're going to get to that. I'm talking about choices that Saul made that put him on a downward spiral morally and spiritually. And, 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 and you've done that before too, probably. I hope you haven't, but I have. And we all have these times. Maybe they're days. Maybe they're just hours. Maybe they're weeks. Maybe they're years where we continue on this downward spiral of self-will and rebellion against God and kind of stiff-arming God and having it our way for one reason or another. Well, Saul, at some point in his life, began that downward trajectory, and we'll see the end of that next week. He never gets off of it. Let me give you another extreme example from Scripture came to me while I was standing here last hour. Think of the thief on the cross and compare those two thieves for a minute. And I'm going to use their lives to illustrate a point here about that downward spiral. At any point, let's go back to Saul and his life, he could have chosen to have got off, let's say, let's use a hotel illustration, on any floor. (laughs) 
and began to engage God again in true repentance. And the further you go down that spiral, the greater the collateral damage in your life and in other people's lives and the greater the consequences of your sin. It's just part of life on planet Earth. We reap what we sow. Yes, God gives us grace at times, but generally speaking, in this life, we reap what we sow to some degree. And and go back to those thieves. The consequences of getting off the spiral of a downward moral and spiritual life, even at the very end of a thief's life, he's capital punishment by his own words. He deserves it. He's a career criminal. So it's obviously had some serious consequences in that thief that Jesus took to heaven with him's life, but he chose to get off. At the last minute, he chose to get off and repent and recognize that that guy hanging next to him was his only hope of heaven, the Messiah. And Jesus said, today with me in paradise. That's different than continuing on that spiral like the thief on the other side. The eternal destinies of the two men are probably very different. I wanted to use that extreme illustration to illustrate the illustration of that downward spiral we're going to see in Saul's life. Next slide, if we could pull it up. It's not near as cute, but it's a picture of David's life. And the trajectory is upward. And there's some big dips in David's life. Like there's probably been some significant dips in your life morally and spiritually. Some big moral failures. We've got some coming up ahead of us in weeks ahead that are pretty serious moral failures. Today we're going to see some too. Maybe smaller, but they're going to have some terrible consequences even today when we look at these chapters. And those are those dips downward, but always there's this thing in David of repentance and coming back to God. God is David's one thing, and he keeps coming back to him over and over and over in true repentance. So the trajectory of David's life is upward toward God. We'll see that again next week. So, with that background in mind, let's dive into the text. I've got six chapters to cover of 1 Samuel, and I'm going to do it by telling you stories this morning from the chapters. I spent quite a bit of time trying to understand and study these stories. Let's start with chapter 21 first. In a few of these chapters, I'll stop, go back, and read a few verses just to spike the emphasis of the chapter maybe, but some of them, I'll just tell you the stories from the chapter. Chapter 21. In chapter 21... After Saul tried to kill David several times in the earlier stories, David finally had enough and he flees from Saul to a town called Nob. It's a town of priests and their families. The Ark of the Covenant has been taken there and the tabernacle's kind of been rebuilt there. And so there's these priests that live there. Ahimelech is kind of the chief priest that lives there. And he's a descendant, remember earlier in the story, two generations earlier of a guy by the name of Eli. He's one of his descendants, that old priest we started the story of 1 Samuel with. So David shows up and he lies right off the bat. And this is not a good thing to do. Lying is generally a sin, maybe arguably at times under certain circumstances. It might not be, but I'm not going into that. This is clearly not necessary. He could have just told him the truth. But he lies to him. And that lie starts a little downward spiral of circumstances in David's life and in the life certainly of Ahimelech. And Ahimelech's nice to him. Uh, He tries to help him, and David says, at this point, his little band of merry men is just a handful, and they need some food. And so he asks for food. Well, he doesn't have any. The priest doesn't accept some bread that's kind of consecrated bread, several loaves. 
and he ends up giving him the consecrated bread. Just a kind of a little side story. Jesus validates these Old Testament stories a lot, and this is one he validates by pointing back to it one day in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, a story is recorded where Jesus and his little band of merry men are walking through a field of grain, and they're hungry, and it's the Sabbath. They pick some grain, they rub it together, and they eat it, which is a technical violation of the Sabbath. The Pharisees are always looking for technical violations. They catch him, they confront him, and Jesus says, hey, that's nothing compared to what David did. And oh, by the way, I'm in the lineage of David, and I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and I'll do what I want. <laughs> and But he points back to this story. That's just a little funny thing I wanted to point out, the story of David eating the bread that's been consecrated. But there's this guy there named Doag. What a name. And he's like his name. He's kind of a Doag. And, and he's an Edomite. He's a foreigner. And he's Saul's chief shepherd. We don't know what he was doing in this town. He says he was detained there for a while. He may have been doing penance or something. And, but anyway, he was there, and he's Saul's kind of head of all of his livestock. And, and he sees these two men, Ahimelech being nice to what he considers Saul's enemy, David. And he hears this whole conversation. And David does another strange thing. He sees Goliath's sword that had been put there. It's kind of a relic. And he takes it and he splits. And he goes to a strange place. He goes another bad decision. Without inquiring of the Lord, he goes and runs to the enemy of the Israelites, the Philistines. He's going to do this twice. This time, he gets scared as soon as he gets there because he thinks they might kill him. So he starts acting like a madman, drooling at the mouth, clawing on the walls. And he appears before this king named, uh, I can't say his name very well, Achish, I think is his name. And uh, he appears before him, and, and the king says, look, i got enough crazy people in my kingdom already. Some of us can relate to this. And he says, I don't need another one. Get out of here. Just get him out of here. So David leaves. He escapes with his hide, but that wasn't a good decision, chapter 22. He flees to a place called the Cave of Abdullam, wherever that is, probably a series of caves. And his family comes out to visit him. And he knows he's got to protect his family. Saul will kill them too. So he takes them to a place called Moab. You've probably heard of that if you're an Old Testament scholar. That's where his great-grandmother was from, Ruth. Remember that incredible story of Ruth? That's David's great-grandmother. So he knows he's got connections there. And they'll be safe there. So he takes his family there. And they stay in exile the entire time he's running around from Saul for the next decade or so. They're in exile in Moab. And while he's there, he runs into a prophet by the name of Gad. And Gad tells him that he needs to get out of there because Saul is going to catch him. And so he flees to the forest of Harath in Judah. And then Saul hears the story that Ahimelech, that priest, had helped David. He hears it from Doag the Edomite. So he calls, he's angry, he calls Ahimelech to him. He said, what are you doing cavorting with my enemy? And Ahimelech tells him the truth. He said, He's not your enemy. He loves you. What are you doing trying to kill him? And he tries to speak truth to him. And Saul turns to his guards and he says, kill this man. Well, he's a high priest. His guards have got better sense. <laughs> they said, we're not killing a priest. We're not doing it. They'd rather die at Saul's hands than be guilty before the Lord of killing a priest. So he turns to this foreigner named Doeg and says, you kill him. He does. He says, go kill all the priests. And maybe take some guys with him, but he kills all the priests. Eighty-five priests he slaughters. Then he kills all their children. Then he kills their wives, and he kills all the livestock. He destroys the town of Nob. Remember, this started with David's lie and deceit and the whole deal. 
chapter 22, verses 18 through 20. I'll just read two verses of this chapter. The king ordered Doag, turn and strike down the priests. So Doag the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. That means priests. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children, its infants, its cattle, its donkeys, and sheep. One guy escapes, a guy by the name of Abiathar, who's the son of Ahimelech. He escapes and he flees to David and joins up with David. He's kind of the last survivor. Strangely enough, this had been prophesied two generations before as happening by God. It wasn't like God was saying, I'm going to kill all, but this is what happens. Eli's family line is going to get wiped out. We're going to see later on in 2 Samuel, the priesthood is going to shift to another family, probably because of the result of Eli's sin. But God prophesied this specifically would happen two generations earlier in 1 Samuel 2, 27 through 36. He did it through an unnamed prophet who came to Eli at the time. If you want to check that out, if you're a real Old Testament geek, you can go check that one out. 1 Samuel 2, 27 through 36, chapter 23. David's army grows from about 400 guys that had joined him. There's about 400 showed up when he got in those caves, and they were, some of them were outlaws. David just kind of had a band of outlaws. And not all of them, some of them were honorable soldiers and that wanted to help David, but some of them were just plain outlaws. And, and it grows to about 600 men in chapter 23. And they attack a, uh, or they defend a Jewish city by the name of Keilah from the Philistines. And they do it after David inquires of the Lord, should they do it. David starts to develop this pattern now of inquiring of the Lord before he makes major decisions, which is better than he did in chapter 21. And he flees again after he defends the city against the Philistines, defeats the Philistines to the desert of Zip. And he does that after inquiring of the Lord again through Abiathar, the priest. He takes advice from the priest. He took advice from a prophet. There's a pattern starts to develop in these stories of David listening to other people who had good sense and who God was speaking through and heeding their advice. We're going to see this happen numerous times in these six chapters. Not just with men, but with a very godly woman, he'll take her advice. And so observe that pattern in David's life and note it. So Abby out there tells him, you better flee. Don't stay in this city. Saul's going to come here, and you won't be able to defend the city, and you'll end up getting killed. And so he does. He flees to the desert of Moan this time, Maon this time. And Jonathan, his friend, comes out to him, Saul's son. Finds him without any trouble. And starts to encourage him in the Lord and speak words of encouragement to him. And he receives those words of encouragement. And he and Jonathan have another ceremony, a sacred ceremony, where they, so to speak, cut a covenant. They're going to love each other and be bonded together. Even though it's, uh, Jonathan's dad's trying to kill him. And then, also in chapter 3, Saul almost finds David. He comes after him with a whole bunch of troops, and he almost finds him. He attacks him, and he's got him kind of surrounded on the backside of a mountain. They did this little pincer movement that appears from Scripture. And they're about to catch him and kill him, and then the Lord intervenes. He has the Philistines attack a Jewish city and sends a messenger to Saul. And just as they're about to capture David, God sovereignly tells Saul, you better get out of here and get back and defend this city. And Saul breaks off the attack of David, and David's spared, 
and goes to defend it. Let me read just a little bit of that. 1 Samuel 23, verses 9 through 13. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. That's the way they had of divining what the Lord's will was. I don't know exactly how this worked, nor did any of the commentators. David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant, has heard definitely what the Saul's plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens turn me over to Saul to save their own hides? And God says, yep, they will. <laughs> you better get out of there. And so he flees. Just wanted to point this out, David inquiring of the Lord. He and his 600 men leave. And then 1 Samuel 23, verses 26 through 28, the story of David almost getting caught. Saul was going along one side of the mountain. David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. Chapter 24. Saul again begins to pursue David. Uh, he takes 3,000 men this time. He's really getting serious. He starts looking for David in the desert of En Gedi. And, Saul, and, and it's going to get a little crude at this point, but it's the Bible. Sometimes the Bible is crude, so I'm going to get a little crude as I tell you the story. Saul goes into a cave to go to the bathroom. Uh, okay, let's say it politically correct. I don't know if he's doing number one or number two, but he takes off his cloak apparently and lays it down. I doubt he's got it on when this is happening. And David, and, and it's not clear what his motivation is, but David's just, he's a warrior. He's brave. And his men are saying, some of his men are in the cave. They're probably scattered in a bunch of caves. But David and his men are happened to be in the very cave where Saul comes to go to the bathroom. And he's alone, and it's dark in there. And he doesn't have a flashlight. And he's going to the bathroom, his robes to the side. And his men say, this is it. God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Go kill him. And David says, I'm not touching the Lord's anointed. But I will mess with him, okay? And so just for fun, I think, he sneaks up and he's going to dishonor him. And he cuts off a piece of his robe and then sneaks back to the back of the cave. And then he starts having regrets about even doing that. He gets convicted and he gets emotional. And Saul goes outside to a huge army that's waiting for him. And David does something incredibly impulsive and incredibly brave, incredibly emotional. He runs out of the cave alone and, and he starts to cry and weep and said, I could have killed you. Here's a piece of your robe. And God strikes Saul with a lucid interval, sanity. And Saul says, I'm sorry. And he repents and he prophesies that David will become king. And he says, I'm going to repent of trying to kill you. I know you love me. And David tells him he loves him, and he says, the Lord's been delivering me, and he'll keep delivering me from me if you keep chasing me. And then Saul quits chasing him for a while, and he goes back home for a season, but that won't last. Chapter 25, Samuel dies, the real hero of this story. The guy that's solid as a rock spiritually, he has his head on straight. He dies, the prophet of Israel dies, and Israel mourns for him. And then David goes to the desert of Maon again. And while he's there, and this is a story within a story, really cool story, he asks for some supplies, food and water, at a time when people are normally generous, especially wealthy people, it's harvest season, and they're, they're, they're killing some animals, and uh, they're shearing their sheep, and 
all this commerce and it's a time of plenty. And this guy named Nabal is really, really wealthy. And David's and his men have been in Nabal's area for a long time. And they've been protecting Nabal's flocks and herds and his shepherds. But I guess he's never really met Nabal. They've just been doing it as the thing to do. Now, all the shepherds that are out there and all the people that are keeping Nabal's livestock love David and his men. But Nabal's name literally means fool. And he lives up to his name. So when David asks for help, he says, no, I'm not giving you anything. He says something. David's messenger comes back and gives him the word. And David now starts to act like Saul. Just for, just for a season. He goes into a fit of rage. And as an impulsive act he takes 400 men and mounts up and says let's go kill him so they're going to kill Nabal and all of the males they're going to kill all of his servants everybody I mean they're going to they're going to wipe everybody out Nabal I guess you know they arranged marriages back then and then Nabal's wife happens to be a beautiful godly and intelligent woman by the name of Abigail and even Nabal's servants know he's an idiot and so one of the servants comes to tell Abigail, who he knows does have good sense, what's happened. Because he don't want to die, and he knows what's coming. And he says, your goofy husband just turned down David. You better do something about it, please, or we're all going to die. That's a loose translation, but that's basically what he's saying. And so she says, okay. And without telling her husband, she gathers up tons of stuff. These people are really wealthy. Wine and water and food and provisions. Mounts up donkeys. And she leads this group to try to find David. And the Lord providentially has them run into each other in a valley. And he sees her coming. And she makes an incredible speech. I'll read part of it to you in a minute. And she confronts David. She says, David, don't take revenge. It's not a good thing for a king to do. She tells him to repent of the evil he's done. She tells it in a very kind, submissive, humble way. And he repents. And he thanks her for it. And he goes back home. She goes back home to her husband. And he's drunk and he's partying. She waits for him to sober up. And the next morning she tells him what almost happened to him and all of them. And it scares him or shocks him so bad. I don't know if he has a cardiac arrest or what happens. But something happens and he has a heart attack and he dies 10 days later after being very sick for 10 days. When David hears that Nabal is dead, he attributes it to God and thanks him for it. And then it is the Old Testament. He asks Abigail if she'll marry him. She says yes. And so David takes Abigail as his wife. I want you to hear some of the words of this woman. Because again, there's a pattern in David's life when he's confronted. And he holds true to this his whole life. Sometimes he messes up really bad, but when he's confronted, he generally responds by listening to the wisdom of God spoken to another person. So this is 1 Samuel 25, verses 26 through 33. I'm going to pick up their conversation right in the middle of it. This is Abigail speaking. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed, she is assuming already that she's convinced him. And from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master, she's talking about David, be like Nabal. May they be fools, she's saying. And let this gift which your servant has brought to your master be given to the men who follow you. She's talking about the stuff she brought him. Verse 28. Please forgive your servant's offense. In other words, she's asking forgiveness 
for not knowing what was going on earlier. For the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master. That's prophecy. Because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Again, a subtle way of saying this is wrong. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, and I love this phrase, embrace this phrase for yourself. May the life of my master be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. See yourself that way. See yourself as intimately tied to the will of the living God who loves you and intends good things for you. That's what she's saying. There's incredible depth in this woman's words. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Verse 30, when the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over all Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. This woman's good. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember me. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to me. He recognizes this is God speaking to a godly woman to him. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Chapter 26. David is again hiding in the desert of Zip. Saul again goes looking for him. With 3,000 men again, with the intention of killing David. David and one of his men, David just, he's just got to be messing with Saul all the time. He slips into Saul's camp at night and he steals Saul's spear and his water jug. Now, the guy that's with him does what anybody says. He says, Look, I'm not going to ask you to kill him this time. I'll kill him. You just let me take a spear, I'll pin him to the ground, make sure he's dead. Then we'll get out of here, and this will be over. And David says, nah, we're not going to do it. He's the Lord's anointing. I'm thinking, why would you slip into the camp to start with? And the Lord, to cover for David, now David thinks he's pretty slippery, but we know from the text that God caused the whole camp to fall into like a coma. They're in this deep sleep. So you and I could have slipped in there under the sovereign act of God and stole the water jug and the spear, and they get out. Next morning, they all wake up. David gets on a little hill a little ways away so he'd have time to escape if they don't like his speech. And he says, nanny, 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 look what I've got. And he really starts taunting Abner, who's uh, Saul's general. He said, you didn't do a very good job protecting your master. And then he says to Saul, I could have killed you again. And the Lord delivered you by convicting me because I don't hate you and you're the Lord's anointed. Stop trying to kill me. And Saul repents again and he prophesies over him. That's probably the last time these two men ever see each other. But that's not the end of the story. We'll pick up the story next week. Uh, I'll make some comments in a few minutes. But let me just read two verses. First Samuel 26 verse 12 to start with. So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. 1 Samuel 26, verse 25. Then Saul said to David, speaking prophetically, God can speak through anyone. 
May you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and you will surely triumph. I'm going to stop there in the text and I'm going to make some comments about what we've read already. Saul is continuing again a life pattern of rebellious, impulsive, self-willed, and ultimately self-destructive behavior. While David is growing in character and maturity, God is molding and shaping David through persecution, tribulation, and hard times. I don't like that part of the teaching. David is bound to it felt like Jesus on the cross at times when Jesus was suffering. My God, my God, Jesus yelled out. And David does it, I'm sure at times you can read it in some of the Psalms he wrote during this period of time. Why have you forsaken me? God still uses difficult times in our lives today to develop and grow us. David is fairly consistent in seeking to hear from the Lord before making important decisions. He's also, again, willing to take the advice of others if he thinks God is speaking through them. Again, Saul, on the other hand, rash, impulsive, rarely inquires of the Lord and almost never listens to good counsel. Eventually, we'll see next week, he will inquire of the Lord, Saul will, late in life as a desperate ploy to know the future without any willingness on his part, though, to play by God's rules. Specific examples in review of David listening to the advice of others. Number one, he listened to a prophet by the name of Gad. Number two, he listened to a priest by the name of Abiathar. Number three, he listened to a trusted friend, Jonathan. Number four, he listened to a godly woman, Abigail. And number five, when he inquired of the Lord, he listened to the Lord. Examples of Saul not listening or heeding the advice of anyone from least teach last week. He wouldn't listen to Samuel, who is a priest and prophet of God, clearly. Several weeks we've talked about that. Number two, he wouldn't listen to his own son, Jonathan, who told him David was loyal. In fact, he tried to kill him. He wouldn't listen to the high priest Ahimelech, the priest who told him that David was his loyal servant. He did kill him. Number four, he wouldn't listen to his own guards who refused to kill the priest. Number five, he wouldn't listen to the Lord. He wouldn't even listen to the Lord who said, don't consult witches or mediums. That's a capital offense under Old Testament law. We'll see him next week violate even that. This idea, though, of David regularly inquiring of the Lord, I just want to comment on that. Divine guidance was a big deal in 1000 B.C., and it's still a big deal in 2017 A.D. We have the written Word of God in a more accessible way now. We also have the Holy Spirit of the living God living inside of us if we know Jesus personally. And we have access to other gifted and mature prophets and priests in the body of Christ, as the church is called. God still speaks today, though. And you can go back to an earlier talk I did a few weeks ago for some of the ways he speaks. He still speaks. But we won't go there now. I don't have time. Just wanted to point it out. David's primary motivation, next point, for not killing Saul two times when he had the chance was not his love for Saul. His primary motivation was the fear of the Lord and his love for the Lord. Another point, again, I've already made it. I'm going to repeat it. God is actively involved with his creation. He's not an absentee God. 
In chapter 26, it was God that caused Saul and his army to fall into a deep sleep. In chapter 23, it was God that created the diversion of the Philistines attacking at that exact moment in time to save David and his men. We highly knowledgeable and enlightened 21st century Western Christians like to rule God and the devil and the angels and the demons out of cause and effect of our reality, don't we? We don't want to admit that, but we do. But denying spiritual reality doesn't make it any less real. How many times has God intervened in our lives to protect us and we didn't even know it? Or maybe we suspected divine intervention, but we denied it, or we forget about it quickly and we go back to being what I would call modern-day rationalist. Story from a Christian magazine article in 1982 I ran into when I was studying for this. I love this story. It's a simple little quick allegory that illustrates the point. It's called The Mice and the Piano. There was a strong belief among a colony of mice that lived in a large upright piano. There was a great player. They had a belief, kind of a legend. There, there was a great player who would come and play on the piano. One who regularly played the music on the piano that mice learned to enjoy. And the music became part of their reality. As time went by, some mice started to climb higher and higher in the piano and discovered how the piano worked. There were wires and hammers, and they began to learn more and more, and they started to doubt if there really was a great player that operated the piano and made the music. And they developed what they called, it really wasn't a complete explanation, but a complete explanation of the systematic way that the piano created its own music. And most of the mice, not all of them, decided that the great player had only been a myth. But the great player just kept playing the music. Next point. At least seven, maybe as many as 12 psalms were written by David during this period of his life. So out of this time of constant stress and oppression in David's life came spiritual fruit that you and I still enjoy today. Next point. David's attempts to escape Saul were sometimes not spirit-led. Sometimes they were merely him taking matters into his own hands. Sometimes he inquired of the Lord, sometimes he did not. When he did not, there were often terrible consequences, what I would call, the military calls it, collateral damage related to his poor choices. We see a few this week. There's more coming next week. Lying, outbursts of anger, but always in David's life, you're going to see this, a consistent coming back to God and inquiring of him, what we call true repentance. Next point. In chapter 25, Nabal, like many wealthy people, he believed that he had generated his own wealth. God actually warned the Israelites about this. This is a constant danger of self-sufficiency. Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18 says, it's the Lord who creates wealth and gives wealth and allows you to have it or enjoy it. Proverbs 16, 32 expresses the value of self-restraint, saying it's better to be one who controls his temper than a warrior who conquers cities. All right, I'm going to try to summarize this in four points. It's hard to do, but I'm going to try. Number one, four truths from these stories. Do right. Do right even when you've been wronged, and you will be. 
Do right even when you've been wrong. Romans 12, 19 through 21. There's a little section on this. I'm just reading a couple of verses of about five. Verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Then a broader principle even than that is verse 21. When evil comes against you, don't be consumed by evil. Don't be overcome by it. But overcome evil, even the evil that's rising up in you, with good. Choose to do good and overcome the evil. Next truth from this text. Regularly seek guidance from the Lord. Through Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, through other people. Regularly seek guidance from the Lord. Number three, God is sovereign. I don't like this, really. I want him to be sovereign as long as it's always working out okay for me, okay? But he's sovereign. He interacts proactively with his creation in ways that we cannot fully understand. And we can get mad at him for a season and he'll tolerate, he understands it. We can't stay mad at him our whole life. And blame him constantly for tough things that happen to us or our family or our friends or even the world. Things that we cannot fully understand this side of eternity. He has the right to rule. We've got to get it through our heads. He does. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis from 1948. That's nearly 70 years ago. On, on, on the worldview then, and it's the same worldview now, even more so. And he was talking about the challenges of trying to share the gospel with so-called modernness of his day. And he says this. The ancient man approached God, or even their gods, as the accused person would approach a judge. He's using a courtroom illustration. But modern man has changed this. We've reversed the rules. We've turned the tables around. We make God the defendant in the way we approach life. And man becomes the judge. Now, we can be benevolent judges. If God has a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease then we're ready to listen individually. And each individual person's trial of God may end up in God's being acquitted. But in modern day times, it's man who thinks that he or she has the right to rule and God who stands accused. That's the worldview we're working with. In our postmodern worldview in 2017, let me carry it a step further. Truth has been displaced by a communally, excuse me, communally contrived morality or spirituality. It's whatever your community decides is truth. Fact of the matter is this. Truth and reality are unbending. And this is God's universe. And like it or not, we live and play by his rules. And we need to humbly reconcile ourselves to that fact. Last point, the Bible, as well as the experiences of life, as recorded in this 3,000-year-old story of God's dealing with David, teaches us something I've already said that I don't like much, but it's true. Character development for Old Testament characters like Joseph, like Daniel, extreme example, Job, like David, and today for you and I, 
often comes through years of trials, struggles, and tribulation. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture. The first one's Hebrews 5.8. It says this twice in Hebrews, and I confess, I don't fully understand it. It's wrapped up in the mystery of the incarnation. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus coming to earth and agreeing to be a man and play by man's rules. It says this about Jesus. Jesus was God's son, but he learned obedience. In other places, it says he was matured or perfected through suffering. Wow. If that's true of Jesus, I'm pretty sure it's going to be true of Jim too and you. James says straight out. James doesn't mess around. No allegory, no metaphor with James. Nothing, nothing hard to understand about what James says. He says it like this, James 1, 2 through 4. You've heard it. Consider it pure joy. Put your name in the blank, Jim. When you face trials of many kinds, and Jesus said, you will, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Close with a story from church history. We pull up that picture of Charles Spurgeon. Okay, he wasn't a face man. Okay? But he was a great preacher. Most of you have heard his name. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Many Christians regard Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He lived in the 19th century, 1834 to 1892, to be the prince of preachers. His sermons weren't recorded, obviously, but he often preached to crowds of more than 5,000. He had a huge, a booming voice. His sermons sold nearly 20,000 copies a week and were translated, even his day, they were translated into 20 different languages. His collected sermons are still in print in more than 60 volumes. Spurgeon published commentaries, devotional books, hymnals. He founded an orphanage, several charitable and religious organizations, and a theological college. The legacy of Spurgeon's ministry still has a profound effect on preachers and Christians around the world today. But most people aren't aware of his life circumstances. He lived under extremely demanding circumstances in times of adversity. After giving birth to their twin sons, Spurgeon's wife Susanna became a virtual invalid and seldom heard her husband preach. Spurgeon himself suffered from gout, rheumatism, Bright's disease, and severe depression. Under these demanding circumstances, he kept preaching, and preaching became a painful experience. Eventually, he succumbed to these diseases, and he died at the age of 57. In addition to his physical suffering, Spurgeon endured undeserved public ridicule and slander. Newspapers called him vulgar and colloquial. He was made fun of because he didn't have credentials. He didn't have the proper seminary training of his day. He was regarded as rude and rough. His ministry was dismissed as temporary. Probably attacks by his fellow ministers were the most painful. Those on the left belittled him. Those on the right said he wasn't really saved. <laughs> he was officially and publicly censured by his own denomination and eventually excommunicated. Still, throughout the pain and the adversity, Spurgeon just kept on preaching. He remained faithful to his call. His character was strengthened by his experiences. His unwavering trust in God prevented him from caving into the adversities he faced. Spurgeon believed this, hear this, God designed the afflictions of his life to develop his character and to prepare him for his ministry. The prince of preachers trusted in God's right to rule.
to do with him as he saw fit because he recognized something we struggle with. God is God and Spurgeon is not. Applications, suggestions during, during difficult times, seek God's presence through prayer and Bible study. Ask him what he wants to teach you through the tough times you may be going through. Now, I know some of you are going through some terrible times. I know a lot of your circumstances, not all of you, and it's hard. Trust God's purpose of faith and character development, allowing you to face hardships and adversities. Thank God for the difficult times, as James said, and the opportunity to rely completely on him. And remember that Jesus suffered too on the cross for you. And remember that unjust suffering never justifies personal revenge. God will vindicate his children. And rejoice. Rejoice in spite of your circumstances. These light and momentary troubles, as Paul called them, are passing away. And what awaits you is an eternal weight of glory. The God of the universe has called you out. He's chosen you. He's breathed life into you. You have the spirit of the living God inside you. And you will spend eternity with him. And that's worth rejoicing in, even in the midst of trials and tribulations. That's it. That's six chapters of 1 Samuel. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come on up. Stand around the room. If you want prayer for anything, go find your brothers and sisters. and Be comforted by them and pray with them. If God is telling you to go pray for a total stranger, this is ministry time. Go do it. It's okay to do that here. We offer communion every week as the early church did. Go find someone and take it together. Remember his sacrificial death and what he's done for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul gives us another reason for suffering. Paul wanted to check out at one point. Life was so tough. He wanted out. He says this, I endured that, and we endure whatever you're enduring, so we can minister better to other people who also live in a fallen world with us. Let's right now stand and engage our great and sovereign God and His Son who died for us.